this week on the Backtable Podcast. One thing that I don't think that we've mentioned on this talk is that's really important for families and parents to know is that HPV is almost ubiquitous. The CDC thinks, and I, there's a reasonable number of investigators, researchers think that uh, somewhere between 80 to 90% of patients will get an HPV infection at some point in their life, somewhere in their body. It's so common and prevalent. I think the stigma of this needs to be reduced substantially because, you know, again, almost nine out of 10 people at some point will, will get this. Um, and uh, if we're vaccinated, we have the chance to make a real mark on reducing that. Hello, everyone, and welcome. This is the Backtable ENT Podcast. Here, we bring you conversations with the best and brightest minds in the field of otolaryngology with the hope that you can take this information and apply it to your practice. I'm Gopi Shaw, and I'm a pediatric otolaryngologist practicing at Children's Medical Center in Dallas at UT Southwestern, and I'm here with my partner in crime. I'm Ashley Agan. I'm a general otolaryngologist uh, practicing in an academic setting at UT Southwestern in Dallas, Texas. And we are your hosts, and we are so glad that you stopped by to check out the podcast today. It's going to be a good day. It's it's a great day, Gopi. I'm so excited about our guest. I'll, I'll go ahead and roll into the introduction because there's a lot to say uh, about Dr. Andrew Day. It's a great day. <laughs> it's a great day with Andrew Day. I'm sure you've never heard that before. Andrew. I haven't. <laughs> Just kidding. Andrew Day is an assistant professor in otolaryngology, head neck surgery at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. He is a Eugene P. Frankel MD scholar in clinical medicine and a member of the Population Science and Cancer Control Program at the Harold C. Simmons Comprehensive Cancer Center. Following his residency in otolaryngology, head and neck surgery at Washington University in St. Louis School of Medicine, he received advanced training in head and neck oncologic surgery and microvascular reconstruction at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. As a head and neck surgical oncologist, he performs transoral robotic and transoral laser microsurgery for patients with throat cancer. He has also obtained funding to study whether we can detect HPV-mediated throat cancer before patients have symptoms or clinical signs of the disease. This could be similar to the widely accepted practices of screening for breast, cervical, lung, and colon cancer. He is about to open a study which will screen 500 middle-aged men in Dallas for HPV-mediated cancers using oral and blood-based biomarkers. Andrew is also a great friend and a wonderful colleague, and I'm so happy to have him on the show today. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you, Gopi and Ashley. <laughs> it's so nice to have you. So we have a pretty important um, and heavy topic today. We're here and going to talk about HPV uh, cancers in the head neck. So I was thinking first, maybe just tell us a little bit about your practice um, and then maybe go into sort of what it means to say that a cancer is HPV positive. Sure. So I'm 50-50. I give, uh, I spend 50% of my time um, caring for patients and 50% of my time doing clinical research. And a portion of my practice is dedicated to caring for patients with HPV positive or pharynx cancer. And um, I do perform transoral laser microsurgery and transoral robotic surgery for those patients, more often the latter. And uh, it's really exciting to be able to merge my clinical practice with my research interests in a very kind of tangible, very tangible way. So, so when you say HPV positive or pharyngeal cancer. T tell us and our listeners, what does that mean? What's the difference between that and if someone says throat cancer? Yeah. So I think that um, if, what I'll do is I'll back into this question a, a little bit by defining some terms, uh, specifically Perfect. head and neck cancer and uh, human papillomavirus or HPV. So to the lay public, head and neck cancer is uh, just any cancer, you know, that involves the head and neck, which could be thyroid cancer, skin cancer, sarcomas, anything. But to those of us in the field, head and neck cancer really specifically refers to cancers of the mucosa or skin that's lining the upper digestive tract. Um, so those would be cancers of the mouth, throat, or voice box. And HPV, which I'll talk about in a second, is is known to specifically cause at high rates 
cancers of the throat or oropharynx. And the oropharynx is um, the part of the throat pharynx, which is behind the oral cavity or the mouth. So that's why it's called the oropharynx. So other term that I'd like to define before kind of answering that question is HPV. So HPV stands for human papillomavirus. There's over 200 types or strains of HPV. And these do cause, uh, some of these cause warts or cancers, um, but 13 high-risk types uh, are, have been defined and identified and are known to cause cancer. And we think that these are transmitted primarily through sex, uh, through sex um, and then there's debate about non-sexual uh, transmission, which we discuss, uh, we'll discuss later. So to back into your question again, at the risk of oversimplifying things, to say something is uh, an HPV positive cancer is to distinguish it from what is traditionally sort of comprised or made up head and neck cancer for decades, um, uh, honestly, until, bef uh, until 2007. So we always thought that, uh, that the skin cancers that were lining the throat were caused by smoking, tobacco, maybe trauma, like a, a like a, a sharp tooth that's irritating the tongue constantly or constantly biting your cheek. Um, but in the later 90s and early 2000s, we started identifying these cancers that were behaving really differently than those traditional um, um, chemical carcinogen-induced cancers, basically. And um, in 2007, ultimately, the International Agency for Cancer, for Research on Cancer, determined that HPV does cause throat cancer. And, um, and so now there are two buckets. There's uh, the HPV-mediated throat cancers, throat cancers that are caused by HPV, and we also cause, call those HPV-positive cancers, and then the HPV-negative cancers. Um, so those that are not caused by HPV, which are caused by those, those other, uh, other etiologies that I mentioned earlier. Um, so I, I think that that answers your question. Yeah, no, that's a great way to distinguish it. So in terms of oral pharynx, just to get into specifics, uh, so tonsil, tongue base are the two primary locations when I think of HPP, HPV positive oral pharyngeal oral pharynx cancers. Yeah, that's true. And, um, and, a, and a much smaller proportion might involve the soft palate, which is also part of the oropharynx or the back of the throat called the posterior oropharynx. But basically, go be right. Those are the two dominant locations for these cancers. So when we say HPV positive, I always also think of like cervical cancer, cancer, anal cancer, penile cancer. Um, is, is, is it the same HPV strains? Like are these all sort of similar in terms of the relation with HPV. Yeah, yeah. So the, the 13 high-risk types do cause, are responsible for all the cancers of these different subsites, you know, th these different anatomic sites, cervical cancer, anal cancer, penile, vaginal, vulvar, uh, and oropharynx cancer. The thing that's different about them is that it, the distribution of which type causes cancer at which location kind of varies. So HPV-16 more commonly causes cancer. Uh, it's actually the dominant cause of cancer in the oropharynx and anus, whereas it's less, it, the other types are, are responsible for a greater proportion of cervical cancers, for instance. And, you know, just, just thinking about patients who are presenting to, to our practices with new cancers, can you talk about how a patient with an HPV positive squamous cell carcinoma might present differently? Is it, or, or is it, is it different? Is it the same? Do they look just like, you know, um, your, your patients who come in or is the, is the clue that maybe they don't have that history of smoking and drinking? Yeah, they do present fair. They have a very sort of unique presentation, which clues you in often immediately to the fact that they likely uh, have uh, HPV mediated disease. Uh, I would say at least 50%, if not more, of patients will present with a neck mass. And, and oftentimes they'll be totally asymptomatic otherwise. They might not even have pain. Some other patients will present with um, issues with swallowing, maybe voice changes, um, maybe a sensation of their lump in their throat or minor discomfort. 
And that's in pretty stark contrast to our HPV negative patients who often present, whose dominant um, symptom is usually pain and usually fairly severe pain associated with weight loss and everything else. And Andrew, can you go, is it, you know, uh, briefly into how the virus can lead to a cancer? Yeah. And um, this will be a big oversimplification as well. I'm not a molecular biologist and I imagine that, that, uh, that they might take me to task for oversimplifying this much. But <laughs> if I think about how HPV causes, um, causes cancer, I kind of simplify it down to three steps. The first is that the, uh, that the high-risk papillomavirus has to infect a cell. And once it infects a cell, this second step is sort of centered on our immune systems and whether or not our immune systems can recognize the infection and uh, and clear it, which happens in the average person. So when an average person has an oral cavity or throat infection, they clear it within six to seven months. And almost everyone, um, like 99% probably of people clear it within two years. But there's a small fraction of patients that for some reason, the immune system doesn't detect the infection, doesn't clear the infection, and, it's, and it just hangs around. And in those patients in whom the infection hangs around, this third step is that the, the virus starts to uh, make these two proteins called E6 and E7. And these two proteins inactivate tumor suppressor proteins. So the, your, our cells normally have these proteins that prevent the cells from going rogue and becoming cancerous. Um, called P53 and retinoblastoma. And those are active in us sort of all the time, you know, right now. But when HPV infects a cell, E6 and E7 proteins inactivate those, those tumor suppressor proteins, and then the cell can go rogue and become, and become a cancer essentially. So that's, uh, that's the mechanism by which HPV causes, causes cancer. Do, do we know numbers for, you know, the prevalence of the virus in the community? What percentage of people have been exposed? Because this is, we're saying it's, you know, orally, you know, sexual transmission, right? For whether it's oral pharyngeal, you know, vaginal, you know, anal, et cetera. Um, so on one hand, I'm like, the prevalence should be high. On the other hand, uh, in terms of HPV, in terms of, you know, Cancer, though, we said it's a small percentage. So how, how do you sort of explain that to patients and families? Yeah. Is that just bad a, luck? That's a great uh, question. And honestly, we don't fully understand why. I mean, there's so much we still don't know about this. I mean, we only recognize that it definitively caused cancer in the throat 13, 14 years ago, you know, which is just a blip in time. But in terms of, in terms of sort of community prevalence, for specifically for patients with, uh, for sp specific to oral cavity or, uh, and, and throat infections. So infections of the mouth, throat, think that if you take a hundred middle-aged men, you know, 45 to 65, specifically, probably in the little, a little bit higher range of that, a uh, hundred middle-aged men right now, and you tested them, 15 of them would have an I would have evidence of an oral or throat infection. And seven would have evidence of a high risk oral HPV uh, infection. Now that's in stark contrast actually to females. If you took the same uh, group of females, we, that they might only have one, only one out of a hundred might have a high risk oral HPV infection. Um, so the, the community prevalence of this virus really varies significantly according to age and sex. And the thing that I, I bypassed this when I was talking about this earlier, but there's this bimodal distribution, we think, where there's this peak in prevalence of HPV in individuals in their 20s-ish, and then another peak in individuals in their 50s, 60s. And this is, we think, providing clues to what's going on in why patients are getting cancers in their 50s to 60s, but we don't fully, un we don't fully understand exactly why that's happening. But the highest prevalence is in this middle-aged men uh, group. Do we know and why men? 
We really don't. We think that maybe women may have, it's possible that HPV may have, that they may have been exposed to HPV in the cervix and potentially the cervix may be more immunogenic and may, you know, elicit more of an immune response there than it does in the throat potentially. So that's one potential reason why they, women might, you know, get an oral HPV infection. Um, but the body's already seen it before, recognizes it, clears it. And, um, in contrast to men who they get it in there, don't have a cervix. And so the, uh, you know, may not, uh, their body is just poorer at recognizing it potentially, but we don't really, we just really don't understand. So just to clarify, I want to go back to those hundred middle-aged men you were talking about. Um, when you say, you know, that a certain number of them, um, would have infection, we're saying just any active infection or they have, you know, dormant infection and maybe they were exposed. Like, uh, can you clarify that? Yeah, that's a great question, Ashley. Um, Infection, according to the best studies that are available, are just defined by what happens when you, when someone swishes their mouth and gargles with, uh, with like a saline solution or a mouthwash. And if HPV is detected in that, then we consider that an infection. But, you know, what does it mean that someone has HPV there? Like, is it active? Is it not? Um, you know, is it just colonizing cells or is it in infecting cells? Um, is it about to become a tumor or not? Is it already a tumor? There's so many things that we don't fully understand. Okay. Because my, I feel like, you know, when, and we'll, we'll talk about the vaccine in a minute, but um, when that was kind of coming out, um, the rationale for the age distribution of who would get it if I remember correctly, it was based on, oh, well, a significant portion of older people will have already been exposed and should already have immunity. Um, so it makes it seem like, you know, that the virus is kind of everywhere and everyone is going to be exposed at some point and, and develop immunity. And I guess some people will continue to have infection. Yeah. Well, and one of the things that we don't really understand is, you know, what's happening at age 50 to 60. And some people are surmising that maybe like our immune systems are just not as strong. And so maybe there was some latent infection, um, some dormant, you know, virus that was just hanging out that for some reason got reactivated because the immune system uh, just kind of gets weaker as we age. So again, there's so much we don't know, which is why this is a pretty fascinating field to study. Yeah. And before we move on, in regards to transmission, patients ask a lot about, you know, kissing. We talk about sexual transmission. So do we mean that they can, you know, that it might be passed through kissing? Or are we talking about, you know, it's strictly sexual or, or oral sex? You know, the risk factors, the, the really well-defined risk factors for transmission, um, particularly for oropharynx cancer, is uh, oral sex. Giving oral sex is is the sort of most dominant exposure, if you will, you know, practice that sort of is associated with uh, getting an oral HPV infection. Um, and, but, you know, vaginal sex, uh, anal sex, all are associated as well. And uh, the, the discussion about kissing and is, is sort of much less defined. Um, and I think there's a lot less evidence around it. I think that we do think that that's pr probably a mechanism by which people could uh, get the virus, but it's just so poorly defined. And some people wonder if like deep kissing or French kissing is uh, patients who engage in that practice are mo more likely to get it. I, I, again, I think that the risk of transmission in that way is lower, certainly lower and less concerning to us at this point than uh, for giving oral sex. So that sort of answers your question. Yeah, no, and I, I can only imagine how uh, it's gotta be a difficult conversation to have with patients and if, you know, if they are active or have a, a spouse or partner, I mean, that I'm sure that that is a whole other thing that as a patient, if I were, you know, it, that's gotta be a whole other thing to kind of think about. 
So in terms of treatment, you know, I, I liked how you put the two buckets. You have HPV positive, you know, or pharyngeal ca- uh, cancer, HPV negative. What's the, tra- you know, I always think of cancer options. You have surgery, radiation, chemo, at tumor board, or for you when you first see the patient, you know, are you thinking, why do you think more for TORS or surgery for HPV positive than HPV negative? And if you can get into that for me. Yeah, I think kind of back to this question as well, def, you know, I'll define treatment um, terms and sort of just general principles. So although these are really distinct cancers biologically, the overarching treatment principles that we apply to patients with the chemical carcinogen-induced cancers are actually largely the same. Um, so depending on the stage, uh, clinical, radiographic, and pathologic risk factors, patients are usually eligible for one of two curative approaches to treat HPV-positive oropharynx cancer. The first is a primary surgery approach, um, and that could be followed by radiation with or without chemotherapy. So these days, um, these days, surgery is probably most commonly performed via transdural robotic surgery, less uh, commonly by transdural laser microsurgery or other approaches. If radiation is needed, we usually give it about six weeks after surgery with or without uh, chemo. And um, the radiation is usually given at a lower dose. It's often by about a week, so five less treatments when surgery is performed and the proponents of a primary surgery approach argue that this exponentially reduces the side effects uh, of radiation. So the second curative approach is radiation with or without chemotherapy. And in this circumstance, radiation usually lasts seven weeks. The chemo drug of choice is cisplatin. And that's the most effective drug uh, that we know of against um, against this cancer, but it's also the most toxic. Like now, to answer your question more directly, to the best of our knowledge, patients um, are equally as likely to be cured by primary surgery, uh, by a primary surgical approach as a primary non-surgical approach. I think that, did, and did I answer your question actually, Gopi? Yeah, no, that's that's great. Our um, HPV positive versus HPV negative is one more uh, responsive to radiation or a surgery. Like, a, is there a difference in the type of this, it's a, is it a cleaner surgery? Do you feel like you get a better resection when it is HPV positive versus does that kind of stuff matter on the micro level? Yeah, yeah. No, we are exploring whether or not, um, so we've recognized that HPV positive, patients with HPV, HPV positive throat cancers um, have really good outcomes in general. And so because of that, we've been exploring whether or not we can reduce the toxicity of treatment. So um so, you know, with regard to your question about surgery, we think that we can, we think we haven't developed the definitive evidence for this yet, but we're leaning towards thinking that um, a smaller, closer margin, like a two millimeter margin um, is going to be acceptable. Whereas for an HPV negative cancer, we think that only a five millimeter plus uh, margin would be acceptable. And we're exploring a bunch of other ways in which we might um, reduce sort of therapies and, and reduce treatment toxicities, like seeing if we can decrease the amount of radiation we give after surgery, um, and seeing if maybe there's less evidence for this, this is based on very low level evidence, but see if we can reduce or eliminate the amount of chemotherapy we give, um, patients, um, who might have lymph nodes that are involved with just a little bit of tumor spilling out of those lymph nodes. So we are really actively exploring what we call treatment deintensification in this patient population. And can you talk about why that's important, you know, just for, for people who may not be familiar with the side of, you know, long-term side effects of having, um, you know, chemotherapy and radiation, what that means for outcomes as far as swallowing and, you know, things like that. Why, why is it important to think about deintensifying the treatment? Yeah, that's a great, that's a really great question, Ashley. So um, I would say the most common side effects that our patients deal with after treatment are dry mouth. Um, So backing up just a little bit more, it's pretty common for most of our patients to require more than one therapy. Only a small percentage, maybe 15% or so, will get away with just a radiation-only approach or a 
surgery only approach. So because they, a, a lot of our patients will need like surgery and radiation or radiation and chemo, um, there is a decent amount of, there is some real treatment toxicity. And because radiation is, is commonly a common denominator in, in this, the side effects of radiation are real, uh, are very sort of real things that are experienced by our patients. So that would include dry mouth, sometimes difficult swallowing from either surgery or the radiation. I would say those are our two most, uh, most common ones, but those like can really profoundly affect patients. And so making it so that those treatment toxicities are less, um, is something that's really desirable for us and, uh, and our patients. There's a number of, there's unfortunately a lot of other risks of uh, of therapy that I won't get into that we're also trying to sort of avoid. So Andrew, when you have like a 22 year old patient versus, you know, the same T2 tonsil, um, between a 22 year old and let's say a 62 year old, um, because of those side effects and potential, like I, when I think of the 20 year old, they have another, you know, hopefully 40, 50 years left, 60 years left. I, I don't know. You know, but with a 62-year-old, I'm thinking, okay, maybe you have another, you know, in terms of lifespan, 10 to 20 years left. Do, do you, does age and with different treatment side effects, how does that play into role of what you recommend initially um, in yeah. terms of surgery or radiation? And I'm sure other medical comorbidities come into play, but... Yeah, um, another great question, Gopi. So as patient, you know, the younger the patient is, the sort of the less inclined we are to give radiation for a variety of, for a variety of reasons, um, including the risk of, you know, uh, radiation-induced cancer, which is very, very low risk, probably less than 1%, but, you know, it does happen in some of our patients. And, you know, late effects of radiation, again, patients might be good and, um, you know, not have any significant side effects and five to 10 years later develop, you know, strictures in their throat or their, in, in their swallow tube. So if we can, all things considered, especially in a really young patient, if we can avoid radiation, that's really sort of ideal. Now, our radiation techniques have evolved substantially. So the kind of toxicities that we were seeing even 10 years ago are so different. Um, than what we're seeing today. So the, the amount of dose that's given uh, and this, uh, the amount of dose that's given to non-tumor structures is, is so much better that I'm seeing patients uh, with real, th there's an occasional patient who might have minimal, if any, side effects after treatment. That's great. And, and when I see these patients, I tend to, you know, in an when I see that a patient is HPV positive, I tend to be, you know, more hopeful because I, I, my sense is that the long-term prognosis is better. Is that accurate? Can you talk about, you know, a prognosis for patients with HPV positive uh, squamous cell carcinoma versus negative? Yeah. Um, thankfully, it is, you know, a, a definitely more favorable cancer in those two buckets is by far a more favorable cancer than this conventional or traditional uh, head and neck cancer caused by alcohol or smoking. When I think about this, most patients present with um, stage one disease, probably 60 to 65%. And we think that somewhere around 90%, uh, 90 um, or over 90% of these patients will be cured. And in patients who present with very early stage one disease with very, with favorable sort of other risk factors, the likelihood of cure we think is over 95%. And even in patients with stage two and three disease, we still think the likelihood of cure is, is way higher than it is for patients with um, conventional standard uh, traditional um, squamous cell carcinoma. So as a general ENT, you know, in these patients presenting to my practice with, you know, a new neck mass, something like that. What, what are things that we need to be doing to make sure that we're getting these patients teed up and, you know, expedite sending them over to you guys to, you know, get treated and, and get taken care of? Oh yeah. Another great question. So if these patients, if the patient comes to us with, uh, if you identify someone with the neck mass, especially in 
in middle age and there's no clear other explanation, um, no obvious recent you know, tonsillitis or infection that you think could have caused it, then going straight to a biopsy um, with an ultrasound guided FNA is uh, really helps accelerate our management and, and also getting an XET, you know, it, getting some imaging. Um, if a patient comes to me with an XET and a, an ultrasound guided FNA, especially if it, you know, identifies that there's a cancer there, that's, that helps me, you know, initiate treatment more quickly. Great. In terms of screening. So I know when I think of um, cervical cancers for women, I think of pap smears for oral cavity. You know, sometimes when I go to the dentist, there's like a black light they started to use. Um, is there a swish and spit? Is there a brush? Like, is there some screening for oral pharyngeal, you know, HPV cancers? Yeah, the, the, probably the best way that I think to describe this is to contrast cervical cancer with, with, with oropharynx cancer in terms of the anatomy. So the cervix is, uh, is, is smooth. And, uh, if you, if you put a brush in the cervix and you, you know, twist it around, you're likely to capture all representative cells in that area. Whereas if you were to brush the, the oropharynx and, you know, people have used the term an oropharyngeal pap smear, um, you are missing the tonsillar crypts. And we actually think that this cancer is arising in the tonsillar crypts. And so, you know, if you brush, you're just getting sort of the surface of the tonsils missing the crypts. And so because of that, um, there's really no enthusiasm for a, a brush to detect these cancers, um, especially early. You know, if you brush someone who has an obvious cancer, then you'll detect it. But that, uh, again, does it sort of, it's irrelevant since we're trying to detect these early. And it's not uncommon for patients to present with tiny, tiny little cancers, sometimes that are nearly undetectable and a neck mass. So we know that these, can, these things can cause cancer when they're super, super small. Now, to, to more directly answer your question in terms of uh, oral rinse, that all that tells us, fortunately, right now, is that someone might have an oral HPV infection, which we know is super common. And uh, if we tried to do additional screening for, say, the 15 out of 100 men that have, or the 7 out of 100 men that have an oral HPV, a high-risk HPV infection, most of those people are going to clear that infection and uh, we'll use, you know, way too many resources to further investigate that since only a fraction of those seven out of a hundred will end up developing cancer. So we're the, the, what we're exploring in the study that we're opening is using oral rinse and some blood-based biomarkers that test for antibodies against those proteins that I mentioned, E6 and E7, and evidence of circulating HPV DNA. So evidence of HPV DNA in the blood really signals to us that a patient might have a, a cancer. We think that if patients have the, either of those two things, the risk of them having a cancer may be somewhere between 100 to 500 times higher than someone who doesn't have it. So, you know, if you were to triangulate someone like this, if they have a positive blood test and a positive oral rinse test, or even just a positive blood test, especially the people with positive blood tests should get screening, or at least in our study, that's how we're, how we're evaluating it. So let's say the blood test is positive. How are you going to screen? Like, where do you go looking? Is that just like in your office, you're looking at the oral cavity, you put a gloved finger, you know, you're feeling stuff, or are they then getting like an ultrasound to look for something? What's, how do you, what do you do then? Yeah. And, and I guess it, it's probably really important for me to mention that uh, I'm doing this not independently. I'm doing this with other really key collaborators, um, both at MD Anderson and at Baylor uh, called Medicine. Um, and so this is a multi-institutional study that I'm doing again with Eric, Eric Sturgis, who's now at Baylor, who's MD Anderson before, and Christina Dahlstrom, who is still at MD Anderson. So when, if someone has a positive blood test, all that tells us is that they're, you know, they're higher likelihood for having an HPV associated cancer somewhere. You know, we have no idea where. Could be the throat, could be the penis, could be the anus, you know, could for in a man, in a man and the vagina, vulva, cervix in a woman. 
And so right now in our study, we're evaluating sort of feasibility of actually screening these people and sending them to an otolaryngologist to evaluate their throat and mouth with a, with a, a flexible scope exam and sending them to uh, a colorectal surgeon to, uh, to do anoscopy and um, look at the anal mucosa and sending them to a urologist test the uh, urethra and, and penis and also to send them to a radiologist to look for lymph nodes that might be enlarged but still maybe smaller than we can detect uh, clinically. And the radiologist is also using the ultrasound to look at the back of the tongue. And so I have great collaborators here, Brittany Tillman, David Fetzer, um, Aditya Bergrodia, Craig Olson, Dwight Oliver and Path, who are helping me execute this study. Wow, that's so cool, Andrew. You mentioned that the cancer is maybe developing in the crypts of the tonsils. Um, so does that mean if you've had a tonsillectomy for whatever reasons in the past, that that would be protective against getting an HPV-associated cancer? Yeah, that's a great uh, question. There are a handful of studies on this, and and I haven't looked at them recently, I don't think that there's a significant drop in risk because then in those patients, it will just arise in the base of tongue. There may be, but I would have to look back at those studies to, to answer that question definitively, honestly. And, uh, and, you know, that's another question that people ask, like what, say I had an, an oral HPV infection and it didn't go away, you know, what would I do? Like, should I get my tonsils and my base of tongue lingual tonsils removed. And that's really, really toxic, you know, therapy and patients are not going to swallow well after that. Uh, they, they may recover to something close to baseline, but um, it will be incredibly painful. And there are other risks like of narrowing of the throat with that kind of procedure. You'd probably have to do it staged. So there's not a lot of enthusiasm for that. So basically this is still very investigational. And if I can just emphasize, you know, we're not act, you know, if someone had an oral HPV infection with no clinical signs, we're not uh, of anything. We're not currently recommending, you know, some, any kind of clinical action. Right. Yeah. I think I, in my practice, I see, you know, anxious spouses who feel like, oh, like, you know, they, they've seen their loved one just go through this and now they have like a tickle in their throat or something that they're feeling. And they're like, you know, you know, take a look at my tonsils. I think there might be something there. You know, we've been sexually active together. I probably have it too. You know, there's just so much stress and anxiety around all of it. It can be a difficult conversation. Yeah, I agree. I have those, I have those often too. So this actually is a good segue to get into the uh, HPV vaccine in terms of, is it protective? Do we think, or do we know against head and neck cancers? And we can, I guess, you know, I'm sure patients ask you about it, especially your younger ones or even the older ones and maybe their spouses. Can you tell us a little bit about the vaccine and if its role um, for yeah. these patients? Yeah, so I think it's maybe helpful for me again to help back into this question as well. Um, so right now, Gardasil 9, is the only HPV vaccine that's available in the U.S. And understanding its predecessors a little bit better can maybe help patients and, and other clinicians sort of understand what this is doing. So Cervarix uh, was a bivalent vaccine, uh, which meant it was designed to help the body, help the body develop immunity to two types of HPV, HPV 16 and 18, so bivalent. Um, and those are the two high-risk strains or types of HPV that are most likely to cause cancer. So it's a very strategic uh, vac vaccine. Then Merck developed Gardasil 4, which is a quadrivalent vaccine. So it targets four types of HPV. And they added HPV 6 and 11 to the mix. And those are the types that cause warts. And so that was, you know, sort of in... Uh, standard for a while. And then Merck developed Gardasil 9. So that's a non-avalent vaccine, which means it targets nine types of HPV. And so in addition to 6, 11, 16, and 18, it also targets 31, 33, 45, 52, and 58, or HPV, HPV 31, 33, 45, 52, and 58. 
So now to more directly answer your question, we know that vaccination reduces the rates of high-risk HPV infections in the mouth. We think maybe by a somewhere around 90%. So we presume that it also pre protects against head and neck cancer. We don't like, because it hasn't been around long enough, we don't know that definitively, but it's pretty much universally accepted that it does and will. Did I answer your question? I think I did go. Yeah, no, you did. Um, have we, has it been enough time to see a decrease in the incidence or prevalence of uh, HPV, HPV positive or pharynx cancers? Like for, you know, uh, recurrent respiratory papillomas in children, I would say in the last five, seven years, those numbers have gone down because of the HPV vaccine. And I just didn't know if there had been enough time to see some of those numbers go down in your um, oral uh, pharyngeal patients. That's a really interesting. I didn't know that about RRP. It actually, it's interesting because it's the opposite. So despite the fact that we've developed and, and implemented the vaccine in 2006 in the U.S., um, HPV uh, positive throat cancer is actually almost an epidemic. It's expected to be one and a half to two times more common in 2030 than it was in 2020. And um, if you don't mind, I'll give your audience some some background information to sort of better understand why we think this is the case. So most people get HPV positive uh, oropharynx cancer in middle age, usually in their late fifties. And as I've sort of already mentioned, the thing is, is that we don't understand when these people got their, got the HPV infection that caused their cancer. What we do know is that there's evidence that some of them got their infection decades ago. I think the longest known the, the case that maybe as long as is uh, someone who had antibodies that, uh, that I've already kind of described in their blood to HPV 28 years before they got their cancer. So we think that that person was exposed, you know, many decades ago. What we don't know is what percentage of people were exposed decades ago and got their cancer from an infection that might have hung around for a little while versus patients that may have gotten it from more recent sexual activity. I think that's sort of one of the holy grail questions in our field, uh, honestly. So what I, the way that I like to think about this and explain this to patients, which probably will be disproven in a few years, but the analogy that I like to use is the concept of chickenpox and the varicella zoster virus, um, where you get the virus, you know, when you're young, it stays in a, in a portion of patients, it stays inactive and for some reason reactivates the shingles, you know, when you're older, uh, later in life. And so at least for some of our patients, that is what we think is going on. They got it decades ago. It hung around, didn't cause any problems, and all of a sudden reactivated and became cancer. So. Ultimately, because we think that patients, many patients that are sort of older now were exposed decades ago, and because the, the cohort of people that have been vaccinated today is only probably in their 20s, you know, the earliest people were vaccinated in 2006, then we, and if most cancers are popping up in your 50s, and we still have like, you know, three decade long cohorts of patients that have already been exposed that won't get a benefit from the vaccine because we don't think the vaccine treats active infections. It only prevents infections from occurring. Those people in their third, you know, late twenties, thirties, forties are all sort of uh, at risk still for developing this cancer. And so that's why we think that it's continued to rise, unfortunately. So it's safe to assume that the patients you were seeing who are presenting with HPV positive squamous cell carcinoma did not receive the vaccination. Yes. Yeah. No, did not receive the vaccination. And, um, and to, emph to emphasize this as well, um, or to emphasize this point uh, additionally, is I don't think that we don't think that there's a benefit to head and neck cancer patients who have HPV positive or pharynx cancer getting the vaccine. Because again, we don't think that it treats active infections, it's just preventative. There are, there are therapeutic HPV vaccines that are being studied that we think may treat active infections, but those are um, still, still sort of in clinical trials. So for, for your patients, who do you recommend to get the vaccine? Again, patients that have HPV positive or pharynx cancer probably, again, aren't going to benefit uh, from it. But I do emphasize, and, and their partners probably won't benefit 
from it as well, uh, particularly if, if they're in long-term monogamous relationships and neither of them is exposed to new sexual partners because whatever the patient has, the partner has probably already been exposed to for a long time, probably has cleared that infection if they got it and developed an immune response to it. So we think that they're we think that partners might have a one to 2% likelihood of having an oral HPV infection. So partners and patients are less likely to benefit. Kind of setting aside the head and neck cancer patient, you know, the CDC uh, or the Centers for Disease Control has this advisory committee on immunization practices. And they're the group that makes recommendations for who should get the vaccine and who should consider getting the vaccine. So this committee um, recommends that all children get two vaccine doses um, between ages 11 and 12. And there are some circumstances in which they might need three uh, doses, particularly if their immune system isn't working as well. Um, but, they, but they really want patients to get vaccinated between ages 9 to 26. So 11 to 12 is sort of their ideal, but anytime between 9 to 26, they're happy with. Um, more recently, they expanded eligibility for the vaccine to people that were 27 to 45 years old through what they through a process called shared decision making, where patients and their doctors sort of come together, have a discussion uh, about um, the risks, benefits uh, of getting vaccinated, and then make a, a decision together. The thought is, is that most patients in this age range have already been exposed to HPV and maybe even a variety of different high-risk HPV types. And so they're less likely to benefit. And, and we don't actually know how effective and, and how much vaccinating this group of people will actually, you know, benefit patients and sort of the population. There are a certain group of patients that may be more likely to benefit. We know, for instance, that men who have sex, men are more likely to have higher rates of HPV infections. And so this might, that might be a group that might be you know, that doctors and patients might, you know, have a stronger preference for getting vaccinated. If I were to identify like the perfect person in my mind to get vaccinated in the 27 to 45 year age range, it might be the person who, or the person who's most likely to benefit is the person who may have had very few, if any, sexual partners before age 26, but who intends to have new sexual partners after. Again, because they haven't been exposed, but or have had a low risk, have had low likelihood of exposure, but are more likely to be exposed, you know, in the future. Thank you for clearing that up. That's very helpful. Yeah. And then the last piece I wanted to, because, you know, is, I'm sure patients ask you about the HPV vaccine. And in terms of, you know, what is our role as otolaryngologists in terms of not just HPV vaccine counseling, but you know, uh, COVID vaccine, you know, patients will ask, like, what do you think about the COVID vaccine? Um, and as a pediatric person, you know, should I be every year reminding patients to get their flu shot? You know, it's, it's offered at children's, so you can go down and grab it, but it's not in my head as like, oh yeah, did you, you know what I mean? As did you get your, I always ask, are your immunizations up to date? But I may not always feel like, oh, did you, did y'all get the flu vaccine? It, that discussion, I, I think can be a little controversial um, just because, you, you know, of people that maybe don't believe in vaccines. And I was just curious, you know, what are your thoughts on the role of the otolaryngologist? Um, and, you know, should, or is this more the discussion for the primary care doc? Yeah, I, you know, I think that, um, I think that particularly with regard to HPV, we have this uh, unique opportunity to discuss how uh, vaccination could prove could prevent throat cancer, which is something that we treat down the line. And we know exactly how significant the, the, you know, treatment toxicities are for these patients and what we could be, um, helping patients, you know, never get, uh, basically, um, or, you know, substantially reduce the likelihood of getting. So, uh, I think that all, all of us probably have a responsibility and, you know, we should all be really encouraged to recommend and remind our patients to do this again, because we see the side effects of patients that get, uh, that end up getting cancers, the substantial side effects that they end up incurring. So, uh, you know, I, I guess I would strongly encourage pediatric ENTs to encourage families to, to 
remain up to date on vaccines. And unfortunately, Gopi, this is a big issue. You know, barely 50% of children or adolescents who are eligible for that vaccine are up to date on their vaccine. And, you know, there's evidence that in Australia where vac- vaccine uptake was is, has been much, you know, higher, that there's like, there's chances that the disease might be eliminated in wow. there. Uh, that, you know, there's discussion about that being a reality, whereas here, unfortunately, it's not because our 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 uh, uptake rates are are low. Yeah, I f- I wish that the age was younger, not just nine and eleven, because I, you know, ha- with my kids, they're uh, seven and nine. I, I we're not going to the pediatrician, but maybe once a year. You know what I mean for the uh-huh. checks. And um, if you if that's not in your, you know, oh, I think there's another immunization at nine, you might accidentally skip that visit. Oh, you know what I mean? Because uh, yeah. when your kids are young, they're going to the pediatrician all the time. Especially they're getting first vaccinated year. all yeah. the time. Yeah. And so you think of like, you know, the MMR, you know, t- t- uh, DTAP, all that stuff is part of it. But I wonder if sometimes this one might get lost. And also there's a lot of, um, you know, because it is uh, sexually transmitted, I think that that can uh, play a role in terms of, um, you know, a social stigma. Well, my kid, you know what I mean? And so mm-hmm. it, it, uh, that counseling has got to be tough as well. But, um, you know, you're right. As a I, PD. Mm-hmm. Can I respond to that briefly? Uh, the thing that w- one thing that I don't think that we've mentioned on this talk is that's really important for families and parents to know is that HPV is almost ubiquitous, like uh, almost the CDC thinks and I, there's a reasonable number of investigators, researchers think that uh, somewhere between 80 to 90% of patients will get an HPV infection at some point in their life, somewhere in their body. It's so common and prevalent. It's, uh, I think the stigma of this needs to be reduced substantially because, you know, again, almost nine out of 10 people at some point will, will, will get this. Um, And uh, if we're vaccinated, we have the chance to make a real mark on reducing that. Yeah. Wow. This was a great talk. We really appreciate it, Andrew. Can you, any, any last, you know, um, thoughts that you might want to leave listeners with any, you know, big um, take home points or things that we might've forgotten to touch on? You know, we're still making tons of progress. You know, the Cardisol 9 still only covers seven of the 13 high risk types. Those are, those are minor causes of cancer. So you know, hopefully we'll continue to make progress. The vaccine is not, a, may not prevent every cancer, uh, every cancer that can be caused by HPV, but has, you know, just real, real significant potential. So I guess I would implore our listeners to emphasize that to their patients. And if their patients to emphasize or, or to, you know, make moves on getting their kids vaccinated. That's awesome. Thanks for being here today, Andrew. Thanks, You're awesome. Ashley. You're a gem. Yeah. Oh, wealth of knowledge. I um, are we, are we done? Well, we got. got Let's do the outro. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. So for for our listeners, thanks so much for stopping by the show today. Please take a moment to smash that subscribe button, rate, <laughs> share our podcast. It will help us um, grow and help support uh, the podcast. Helps helps us to bring you this free content as much as possible. Please follow us on social media. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. Our handle is at underscore backtable ENT. Thanks for tuning in. It's a wrap. See you next time. (laughs) Bye. (laughs) 